0: Welcome to the 419th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Nadia Afifi, author of the debut novel, The Sentient. Stay tuned for the interview. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro.fm. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S., check out Libro.fm today. Welcome back to the reading and writing podcast. My guest today is Nadia Afifi, author of the debut novel, The Sentient. Nadia, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Great. If someone hasn't heard about your novel, The Sentient yet, how would you describe the novel?
1: I would describe it as a, a sci fi novel with a central mystery and a, a tinge of thriller as well. It starts off with a, a question and then quickly shifts into a very action packed story.
0: And do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write The Sentient?
1: But yeah, I had a little bit of a contrarian uh, mindset when I was writing it. I, I love science fiction. And when you're writing a sci fi novel, you're always looking for a way to subvert a trope or Present a story in a new way. And I'd always been interested in the idea of cloning. But if you look at most movies and popular culture in general, when you talk about cloning, it's always framed as a bad thing. Cloning is something we should not do. Dangerous things happen when uh, scientists try to play God and, and clone a human being. So that kind of formulated the idea for The Sentient, where I wanted to tell a cloning story where cloning was not a negative thing. The problem really didn't come from. Trying to clone a person, it was more the opposition and, and the panic around cloning. So that fed into the plot of my novel, where the main character gets assigned to a cloning project and quickly unravels a conspiracy to try to stop the cloning project from succeeding at any cost and trying to figure out who's behind it and why.
0: And so, do you remember your earliest attempts at fiction?
1: Early attempts? Um mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was younger, I definitely tried to write a couple uh, little stories, usually based off of books that I had already read. And then uh, once I got into college, I wrote uh, kind of short fiction, but was afraid to tackle a novel. It wasn't until I got in the workforce that I told myself, it's time to do what I've always wanted to do and and tackle that first novel. And that's actually what The Sentient is, the first novel I've written.
0: And how was that process? How did that process go for you? Obviously, it's published, but I was just wondering in terms of the actual writing process after you had written some short stories.
1: A novel is definitely more challenging, both in terms of the time it takes to write one and also just managing the complexities and and the entire plot of a novel. And I was definitely a bit of a rookie when I went into it. I didn't really take a lot of uh, writing workshops and classes. I just had this idea and I had a plot that kind of formulated in my head as I was going and just sit down after work and try to churn out a a chapter or two. And then I I was making a lot of rookie mistakes, like um, editing as I went along, trying to make every single page perfect, which wasted a lot of time, obviously. And eventually I got to the point where I needed to go back and really think about it and plot map the novel, have a clear storyline and different acts and what's going to happen in each chapter and Once I did that, it was a breeze and I sped through to the end and then went through the whole querying process. And I don't know if uh, your readers are familiar with uh, querying, but that's when you want to get traditionally published. The first thing you have to do is go out and find an agent. And I quickly learned that my book was not ready. needed a lot more work and editing. And so that's when I really went back and learned some tricks and edited it properly and made it a more cohesive novel and then landed my agent and landed my book deal.
0: And So what was that editing process like? You said you had to edit it to get it to be publishable. What were you editing and what were you changing?
1: Initially, a lot of it was just pacing and making sure that all of the subplots and all of the elements of the novel all fed into the same themes in the broader storyline. I had also planned the novel as a trilogy, and that makes it extra hard for yourself because you have to write a story arc that works as a single novel while also giving enough feedway into the next novel and then making sure it also ties into the third book, making sure you've got every arc covered. You throw in information in book one that will pay off in book two or book three. I had to make some changes there. And then after I got an agent, I made even bigger changes and cuts. I actually removed an entire character from the first novel, it was a pretty main character, but we figured out that it wasn't really adding a lot to the plot and the character, the, what the character did could be covered by other more minor characters and make them more, more developed and complex. So that was a pretty major edit. That was going page by page and scene by scene and reconstructing it, but it was absolutely worth it to do. C-
0: can you remember the first science fiction stories or novels that you read?
1: First science fiction novels and stories. Wow, I'm going back. I read read Ursula Le Guin when I was younger. And in college, I read Octavia Butler. And that was, I I loved her writing and just the way she tackled different kinds of stories. And I think seeing uh, female authors put their own turn on science fiction so early on was definitely a big inspiration for me. And I read some of the classics as well, Ray Bradbury, Fahrenheit 451, and so on.
0: Sure. Sure. So what what is it that appeals to you about writing science fiction?
1: I think there's just so much you can do with uh, sci-fi. I like the just general premise of every science fiction novel kind of centers on a what-if question. What if this new technology was in place? What if this happened in the future? What if this happened in like an alternate version of history? And it's really a great avenue, I think, to explore a lot of a lot of themes that are very relevant to the here and now in a direct way. I grew up in the Middle East, raised in Saudi Arabia and Bahrain, which is both a very, if you watch the news at all, like, very politically charged kind of region with religion and sectional conflicts and all of that. And uh, sci-fi is a great way to explore controversial themes in a way that's indirect. You can set a story on a distant planet or in the very far off future and comment on things in the here and now in a way that's not really on the nose. And it's also, there's a fun element of exploring what could potentially be. You can take the present and present something more optimistic or hopeful.
0: Well, as you just mentioned, you're Arab-American. How do you think your culture and identity informs your writing?
1: I think definitely in a lot of the themes that I cover. I wasn't raised in a very religious environment. Religion was obviously all around me. I think same with kind of social issues around women's rights. So those are themes that tend to crop up in almost every novel or story I try to
0: And I'm curious, now that you have to be the expert, but do you have a sense of science fiction in that region and in the Middle East? And is there much of a science fiction community and, and writers?
1: There, there really isn't much of a I think of a writer community, it is growing from what I've heard. And there are more Middle East and North African writers getting into sci-fi. And I really need to get better about uh, reading more of them. I know a lot of uh, friends and family over there who love science fiction. Everything from Star Trek to like sci-fi novels. So I think it is a growing thing. It's not quite an Arab story, but a recent one that I read that was great was The Haunting of Tramcar... I forgot the number, but uh, by P. Del- P. Jelly Clark, and it's actually set in like an alternate version of Cairo that's a steampunk novel that has gin or genies and a lot of kind of fantasy and sci-fi woven together. And I just thought it was so creative and different. You don't see a lot of science fiction novels set in the Middle East or with uh, Middle Eastern characters. And I think it'd be wonderful if uh, there was more of that in publishing.
0: That's great. Given your experience, as you mentioned earlier, writing and editing the sentient, what writing advice would you offer for those who are writing their own stories and novels?
1: Um, I'm trying to think beyond like the usual cliche advice you get is to read a lot, but it's, it's, (laughs) every writer says that, but it's so true. Um, Read a lot, but also formulate your own style and Uh, decide what kind of stories that you want to tell. I think from a more practical point of view, I would say definitely don't edit as you go. I think a lot of people tend to get hung up on trying to plot and get everything perfect. I I learned a lot after The Sentient to just get that first draft down, just keep writing, keep charging forward, and then worry about making it perfect when you go through your rounds and rounds of editing.
0: So what fiction or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed?
1: Oh, man, I, I read so many books. I actually have a target to read about 100 books a year. Yeah, I did it for the last two years. And I'm shooting to do it again this year, it's been challenging with a lot of writings. It's great. But the flip side of that is I sometimes have a hard time remembering everything that I've read, because it's just goes so quickly. I recently read *Other Testaments by Margaret Atwood, which is her sequel to The Handmaid's Tale, and I thought that was a great read. I also finished uh, The Ten Thousand Doors of January by Alex Harrow, which is a fantasy novel. Or another really good one, just beautiful lyrical writing and a great style, great story. I guess on the nonfiction side, I read a really interesting book called Spook, Science Tackles the Afterlife by Mary Roach. And that was a great one for me because it tied into some of the themes in The Sentient around consciousness and death and so on. But it talks about how science has tried to look for evidence of life after death, Things, everything from ghosts and spirits to looking at near-death experiences and what happens to human consciousness. But yeah, if, if anyone on the podcast is interested in that kind of theme, that's a great book.
0: That's great. So are you working on another novel now?
1: I am, yeah. Working on two at the same time. I have the the sequel to The Sentient because I planned that as a trilogy, so I'm about a quarter of the way through that right now.
2: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant.
1: And I also have an unrelated uh, sci-fi novel also in the works, and it's set in the Middle East this time. This one's in Beirut. And another sci-fi thriller main character is a parkour racer, and she gets uh, locked into a kind of pharma drug-dealing conspiracy with a terrifying new drug that can actually alter a person's perception of time. Meets the character who's been affected by the drug and bent on revenge and gets pulled into that story.
0: So, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels?
1: Sure. I have a website, www.nadiafifi.com. I have a blog up there that I try to keep fairly regularly, and it has uh, links to my short fiction and my books. And uh, I also have a Twitter handle, um, at nadoodles, and a Facebook author page.
0: Great. Again, we've been speaking with Nadia Afifi, author of the debut novel, The Sentient. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Nadia, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you. It's been great. And now stay tuned as author Nadia Afifi reads from her debut novel, The Sentient. The
1: Sentient, Chapter 1, Wilderness. The Green Line to Bedlam was the oldest train route through Westport, a clogged, aging artery through the city's industrial zone. Inside one of its trembling cars, Amira Valdez pressed her face against the cool window, exhaling with forced steadiness. She had not felt this anxious on a train since her escape from the Children of the New Covenant compound ten years ago. The train shuddered as it passed over a battered section of the tracks. Amira clenched her fists, digging her nails into her whip-scarred palms, another remnant of the compound. Amira's morning commute to the academy was normally a pleasant one, but today was placement day, and far from ordinary. She pulled away from the window, where the tracks ascended above ground and the dense, grimy brick buildings of the riverfront district came into view. Academy students filled a train car, all prepared in their own way for the most important day of the year. A gangly young man with a green mohawk leaned against one of the central poles, muttering a string of equations. Another student grimly performed lunges near the door, inciting glares every time new passengers boarded. No one made eye contact. Talented students abounded at the academy, and assignments were limited. Assignments in space would be even rarer. Space. Her mentor, Dr. Mercer, called it the world above the world. For Amira, the research stations orbiting overhead represented everything the compound was not. Unburdened by the past, a place that welcomed the unknown and challenged the idea of the unknowable. She belonged there. But if she failed to place well in the Aldwych District, the epicenter of the city of Westport's lower Earth orbit industry, today's exams would mercilessly destroy her dreams of working space-side. Those countless hours she'd spend as a lonely child, hiding on the roof and searching the night sky for space-bound shuttles, would mean nothing. She had to succeed. Amira chewed her lower lip, forcing down her doubts. The outlines of Eldritch's imposing skyscrapers rose in the distance as the green line turned east. A faint trail of smoke from the Galileo building signaled a recent shuttle launch. Amira ran her finger along the condensed window glass, tracing the shuttle's skyward path towards the station. Waves of adrenaline pulsed through her small frame, growing stronger as she neared the academy stop. You've waited a long time for this day, her inner voice encouraged. You know you're ready. This is what you were meant to do. This is who you're meant to be. The train announced its arrival at the academy with a dull screech and wail. The student reciting equations switched to a torrent of expletives. As she stepped outside, Amira's heart quickened at the sight of the academy's elegant angular walls, the sleek architecture of its buildings amplified by the comparatively grim industrial neighborhood that surrounded it. Despite Oregon's mild climate, the academy adopted a distinctly tropical aesthetic. The school's founder conducted her research in the Brazilian rainforest and brought the jungle back with her. Synthetic palm trees lined the walkways and vines crawled over the self-consciously modernist buildings, their concrete walls made to look like timber. Amira touched a founder's statue every time she passed it, as though she could absorb the late scientist's essence through the marble. The Academy's main building hosted the placement day trials. Its corridors were remarkably silent, save for Amira's echoing footsteps and the occasional somber-faced student shuffling by. A dull eyed teaching assistant ordered Amira to room four so her fate would be decided there. Amira took a steady breath and followed the instructions, striding with as much confidence as she could muster toward the lecture hall. A small pale figure emerged from the lecture hall's towering doors. Amira's best friend, Darcy Pham, grinned excitedly, raising her fists in triumph. Though the knot in her stomach tightened further, Amira returned the smile and they clasped hands briefly. Darcy mouthed the word Pandora before turning around the corridor. Amira blinked with surprise. The Pandora Project, spearheaded by a team of elite Aldwych scientists, was really a collection of projects with one common theme, a desire to push the boundaries of science as far as law, budget, and human understanding would allow. It was no surprise that Darcy, a top quantum programmer at the Academy, who custom-made her own third eye, had placed well. But Pandora? The project was both unusually prestigious and clandestine, even by the standards of insular Aldwych. And there it was, room four. Amir found no external indicators of what awaited her beyond the door, but she had a reasonable guess. She managed to evade one test in her 10 years of study, but she would not face the panel without completing it. Just as police officers had to be shocked before they could inflict the pain of a nanopulse taser, Amir would have to lay her own mind bare before she could become an academy approved therapist and holomantic reader. She exhaled, memories of glimmering space stations and night skies dancing in her mind's eye and walked through the door. Mira sat still, arms folded in her lap with sensory pads attached to her forehead and temples. She breathed deeply and closed her eyes when the first needle entered her wrist. The standard dose of Nervitrine, cooling as it found her vein. Are you ready? A lanky young man with horn-rimmed glasses pulled up a seat next to her, monitor hovering over his knees. Nervous? I can change our background to a beach or a park or whatever you prefer. I'm fine. The walls were white, windowless and sterile. All right, then will submerge in a few minutes. In the seconds before her thoughts would no longer be hers alone, Amira allowed herself a final moment of calculation. Her skills as a holomantic reader, the latest breakthrough in thought visualizing neuroscience, did not interest a placement panel. This exercise was ultimately a psychological evaluation, intended to deliver a verdict on her emotional stability for a position that gave her access to patients' innermost thoughts, a verdict on the soundness of her mind, not what she could do with it. The sensory pads warmed against Samira's face, joined by an odd pulling sensation in the back of her head, as though an invisible hand tried to reel her like a fish on a hook. She struggled to concentrate on the door, but it grew harder and harder to focus. The hologram table to her right projected images from her brain as she experienced them, in flashes of shapes and color that formed three-dimensional scenes. Initially dim and blurry, they took form while the man, her assigned reader, adjusted dials and dragged his fingers across the large monitor. Amira clenched her fists. She fought to keep her expression neutral, but the glimpses of memory continued to appear, gaining clarity and strength under the reader's skilled navigation. This was only the first step. The reader probed the first level of her consciousness and would move in deeper as he navigated the complex neural map in front of him. Any academy student could learn to read the map of the human mind. The real skill, the one Amira possessed in abundance, was knowing where to look. Amira shivered. If this reader could find points of weakness the way she could, the next hour would test her like nothing else. Okay, Amira, let's start, he said. In the interest of treating this like a proper therapy session, let's focus on a moment from your past and dissect what it means together. In your profile, it says you were originally born in one of the religious compounds in the Southwest, correct? Amira suppressed a sigh. As she had dreaded, she would have to relive the compound, the epicenter of all her traumas, to pass her final test. Yes, she said. No sooner had the words escaped her lips, the tugging sensation returned. What do you think of when you remember life on the Children of the New Covenant, he asked. An open-minded and vague question, a common tactic to start off a holomantic therapy session. Amir closed her eyes and centered her thoughts on the word compound. Other words started into her thoughts as well, along with images and sounds of violence, of terror that that would never leave her. But she resisted, struggling to focus on the word alone and not the memories it evoked. And there it was, clear and vivid on the nearby hologram, the compound at night. It gave off an otherworldly light from a distance, its pale round buildings glowing like craterless moons rising out of the Sonoran Valley. It was the only source of light for hundreds of miles on those typical nights marred by ashy clouds or smog from the western cities. Its inhabitants left those cities generations ago to escape the modern world's liberties and license— But civilization still found ways to reach them. With the luxury of distance and time between her and and her place of birth, Amira let herself see the unsettling beauty of the place, the hushed calm that descended over the desert when the sunlight dissolved over the mountains. The solar power that fueled the compound left the pathways and low buildings glowing with an eerie, bluish light at night. But Amira knew the secret lives that existed within each of those orb-like houses, the hidden violence and despair contained within every wall. The way people disappeared, never to be spoken of again except in quiet whispers. The way women and girls barely ranked above livestock, a means to an end. Her face grew clammy at the sight of the barbed wires around the compound walls, and she pushed the image aside with effort, closing her eyes. Her heart quickened as sound replaced sight, screams and cries from old punishments. The burning of chimera, warm and thick in her throat at the start of the passage ceremony. Another tug in her head. The scene in the hologram shifted to a young girl with long black hair. No older than 13, the girl shivered on her knees in a small shed. She lifted her shaking hands to gaze at her palms, which were raw and bleeding in thin trails onto the floor. Amira, are you okay? The man's voice, so distant, cut through her thundering heartbeat. Amira swallowed and nodded. Biting her lip in frustration, she redirected her thoughts to her first image of the compound at night, but she could feel the man probing deeper into her thought patterns, the sensors warming slightly against her temples. Okay, let's focus on that memory for a minute. I see a lot of fear activated around the prelimbic cortex, a very conditioned fear, of course. Why, why are you in that small place and what brought you there? Amira's mouth went dry. This was the first night she tried to escape and the punishment was predictably severe. She had spent months building her resolve to leave, knowing the consequences of failure. And then she had failed. Residual pain flashed across her palms and she balled her fists. Opening her eyes, Amira could see the images in the hologram shifting again, from the shed to a large crowd in a clearing. Most were children or teenagers, wrapped in bright-eyed, flanked by stony-faced adults in long black coats. No trees or clouds shielded them from a fierce sun, though shadows from nearby hills stretched in their direction. The gathering. Amira grimaced, trying to redirect her thoughts to the shed, to the smell of blood and fear, but it was too late. The gathering, the man asked with interest, dragging his fingers along the words that appeared on his monitor. What does that mean? Is that what I'm looking at right now? He's good, Amira thought. He knew when to prod further and follow an idea, and when to hold back on what he suspected to be true. They were moving closer together toward a defining moment, one that ultimately brought her to this very room. A moment she never wanted the Academy or anyone to expose. She dug her fingernails into her palms.